you've read anything that uh, Chuck Swindoll has written, you probably have read somewhere in that uh, stuff the uh, story about Dave Roper's paper mache turkey. Does that illustration ring a bell? Dave Roper was a, or is, a, an, as an attorney in the city of Dallas in a large law firm in downtown Dallas. And they, they, they pull a lot of practical jokes on each other in his office down there. Everybody's always pulling some kind of prank on someone. And Dave is the worst. And so they, one Thanksgiving, everybody in the office ganged up on him. And they made this paper mache turkey. And they weighted it so that it weighed about 15 pounds and put it in a butterball wrapper and froze it. And they had this um, party, you know, uh, on Wednesday afternoon before everybody left for the Thanksgiving holidays. And they presented this turkey to Dave in a paper sack just at the end of the party. And everybody dismissed. And for, some, for some reason, he, um, he was going to leave his car downtown in a parking garage and catch the bus home. And he was leaving on a vacation down to the Bahamas or somewhere for the Thanksgiving holidays. And he was riding on this bus home. This guy got on, sat down beside him. He was just downcast and forlorn and just so despondent. And the guy started telling him this sad story that he had a family, five kids and no job. And he'd been out all day all over Dallas looking for a job. He was hungry. And Dave was saying to himself, now what the heck, you know, I don't need this turkey. I'm going on a trip and this guy's hungry and he's got a family and five kids. It'd be just about enough for him for Thanksgiving dinner. And so he'd made up his mind that just as he got off, he was going to give this, not embarrass him or anything, but give this turkey to this guy. And so at his stop, he, as he got off, he said, oh, by the way, I, let me give you something here. He said, I'm going on a vacation. I don't need this. And he gave his turkey to this guy. Now the Make a long story short, Tuesday when he got back to work, everybody in the office, you know, they were just waiting for him. They were all snickering and laughing and wondering what happened. Well, he didn't know, you know, he had a paper mache turkey. So they asked him, finally, this couldn't stand any longer. Somebody said, well, how was your turkey? And he didn't want to tell them that he didn't eat it. You know, he gave it away. So... So he said, oh, it's great, man, I loved it. You know, and they're thinking, what is this? You know, so it just, kinda, it just kinda diffused their joke. Actually, the joke was on the poor guy who somewhere in Dallas was thinking, that is absolutely the cruelest man that I have ever met in all my life. I give him this sad and true story how we're starving to death and the, and the, and the turkey gives me a turkey. You know, I mean... And, and, and the, the moral of this story, a true story, is this. Is that you cannot determine a person's heart in a one-time encounter. That is, you cannot determine a person's heart by the initial impression. Now, now the Lord doesn't want us just to disregard, you know, um, um, discernment. And He's not... Um, you know, in the business of proliferating a blind love in any way. But what James is struggling with here is, is the matter of dealing with people by the initial impression. By what you see 
on the outside, you see. Now there's some basic principles that govern the matter of snobbyism or snobbishness or whatever the word is. And I want us to look at those, those principles. The first principle in verse 1, if you're following in your, your worksheet, and I hope you are, the statement is this, my brothers, my brothers don't be partial. In other words, faith and Christ and partiality are incompatible. Listen to me. There are some things that just don't go together. Fire and, and water and you know, light and dark and water and, and oil and Christianity and partiality. They just don't go together. They're just incompatible. And the statement here is an imperative statement. Really, the translation is, stop showing partiality as though it were already happening. Now, I know what some people you know, are prone to say. Well, now, being snobs and, 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 and having a snobbish attitude and, and showing discrimination and partiality and being prejudiced, that'll never come, that'll never happen in the church. It is happening in the church. And James is not saying, I want you to... I'm warning you, be on guard lest this kind of thing creeps inside the fellowship of the church. He's saying it's already being practiced in the church and it needs to stop. And the time is no different. As a matter of fact, what he says, this, as he used this term, the glorious Christ is, that Christ is the true glory and the Christians should be the last person who is impressed by the sham glory of status. I'm going to confess to you that I'm, I'm just afraid that, that uh, snobs have found more in the church than anywhere else. Now notice how he defines this, how he gives the meaning of this, favoritism. What does that word mean when he said don't show favoritism or discriminate? It comes from, it's a word that comes from two words. And the two words are to receive by face, and that is to welcome on the basis of the physical appearance or how you're dressed, to, to welcome on the basis of the outward appearance. And this word is only found three other places, and all three places it refers to God, and what it says is that God never really ever welcomes somebody just on the basis of the outward appearance, on the basis of the face. He does, just doesn't do that. I suppose that one of the most uh, life-changing books I've read lately is a book by Warren Wiersbe called The Integrity Crisis. I've referred to that book often. It really shook me to, the, to my toes. And in this book he, he talks about the integrity crisis that has developed in modern Christianity and he makes this list of what he calls evangelical substitutes. That is, instead of you know, reaching out in evangelism and caring, we've substituted certain things. And, and, and I want to read what he says. It's kind of long, so, you know, settle in here and hang in. At the top of the list, I think, is the church's desire to be accepted and approved by the world in general, general and important people in particular. In recent years, we've sought the applause of men, not the approval of God. And too many ministers have depended on Christian celebrities, quote, unquote, to get the attention and the support of God's people. 
It used to be that the three most important things for success in our meetings were that people be filled with the Holy Spirit, burdened for souls, and ready to give God the glory. But then it became necessary to have famous people on the program. You, you remember? You, that's so true. Such as Hollywood stars or prominent athletes, well-known entertainers all of whom were expected to say some good word for God. It's doubtful that all these famous people were really saved. They were probably only using our organizations to promote themselves. And now we look back and count the casualties. A.W. Tozier calls this the Wheaties approach to evangelism. Just as you should eat Wheaties because John Jones eats Wheaties, so you should be a Christian because John Jones is a Christian. This approach is ideal for a society like ours that worships success and has confidence in testimonials. However, when the emphasis is on the fame of the witness and not on his or her faith in Christ, something is bound to go wrong, and it has. We've discovered that these people were only celebrities to admire, not heroes to follow and that the way they lived too often contradicted what they said. Yes, we're embarrassed, but we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Basically, it's a problem of integrity. Reputation was more important than character, and popularity and the ability to draw a crowd were more important than a consistent Christian lifestyle, and that approach led to things starting to come apart at the seams. It's a subtle form of religious pragmatism. Now, what he's saying is this. And we're so impressed with, you know, fame and popularity and, 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 and success and, you know, and, 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 and wealth and status that that's all that matters. And that kind of thing has invaded and in, in, encroached upon the integrity of the church. That's what James is dealing with here. Now, the principle illustrated. He said, so let me illustrate what I'm talking about. And, and he illustrates it in verses 2 through 4. Now he said, get the setting. Here's a, here's a wealthy man. Here's, here's a church meeting for worship. Now you've got to understand that in that day, in that culture, there were the extremely wealthy and there were the poor and there, were nothing in, there was nothing in between. You were wealthy and you had slaves or you were a slave. And there, were this, there was this enormous wealth on one end of the, on the, one end of the spectrum and this this grueling poverty on the other end of the spectrum and, and what an amazing sight it must have been for those two people, those two kinds of people get together in church. And here you had an old boy sitting over here, he's just poor and dirty and in and, 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 and rags. Sitting next to him was this wealthy man and they, they, they displayed their wealth by wearing rings on their fingers. They wore several rings on each finger except the middle finger. And, and, and lending uh, money in that time was a common practice and they, they just ripped people off with the interest or exorbitant interest rates and so they had what they called a summary arrest so that if an old boy saw somebody that owed him money and couldn't pay, he saw him on the street, he had the right to arrest him, haul him off to jail, you know. So it's not unlikely that in the same church setting there's a person that owes this wealthy man some money. He could be arrested right there at church. That's the setting you got. This enormous wealth and this grueling poverty sitting side by side in church. Now, here's the usher, verse 3. 
and he's uh, going to usher in. Uh, somebody steps in the back of the church, and it's a wealthy person, a real wealthy person, and the usher can't see past his clothes. He's got all these beautiful clothes on, and he has all these rings, and he notices that, so he says, uh, come on down here, we're going to give you a choice seat. He brings him down to the chief seat, and it might even be that he has to nudge one of the poor folks sitting there and say, would you go sit in the back? You can sit back there by my footstool. This seat belongs, you know, to, to Mr. Many Clothes here. We, we want him sitting here. You, you, get, you, you understand the picture. Je- Jesus talked about it in Matthew 23, 6, when he says that the Pharisees love the places of honor at the banquets and they love the chief seats in the synagogue. And it really thrilled them to come into church late and have them paraded down to the front by the usher and given a choice seat. Man, that was a stroke of their ego. Where would you have him seat? be seated? I mean, where would you put him? Now, there's nothing wrong with being rich or being poor, there's nothing wrong with front seats and back seats. What's wrong is found in verse 4, and that is that you move him down to the front because you have some subtle motive in mind. Well, I was out at the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. I did go to, to the Southern Baptist Convention. And my hotel was immediately, was directly across the street from Caesar's Palace, and they had the fight on Monday night, the fight, that is, Leonard Hearn fight, the big one, the $10 million one, $20 million one, 10 for, Hearn, for uh, Leonard. Now, I didn't, I didn't have tickets to the fight, but I did, have a, I did have an opportunity to go over to the front of Caesar's Palace and watch all the rich folks come. And I did that. I, I was among one among hundreds who, who, who scrambled over to the front of Caesar's Palace to watch all the rich folks come to the fight. Now, I looked at my watch, and the fight was already going on, and folks were still coming. That was the thing. one thing that was strange to me. Then it dawned on me, that's why they were late, because we were there to see them. And they came. Uh, Robert Goulet and his Lamborghini drove up, and his date got out. Everybody oohed and odd. And Lou Gossett Jr. drove up, and everybody oohed and odd. They had these stretch limousines. And, and I swear to God it's true. My wife's here and she'll give tests. She tells the truth. That doesn't speak ministerially. They came up in a stretch limousine, the longest limousine I've ever seen in my life, and they had, a, they had an addition to the end of that limousine. True story. They, they looked like they put another limousine and hooked it on the back of that stretch limousine, had dual tire, dual wheels on it. It was so long, had to have dual wheels on the back. Couldn't even turn it around. Three people got out of that thing. It must have, it could have seated this whole congregation. You know. and, and everybody was just ooing and on and you know, just going on over these rich people. Now this guy came up in a Rolls Royce. Three young black guys came up in a Rolls Royce and got out. And everybody rushed over there. And I thought, got to be a celebrity. So I rushed over there with my camera. Everybody was taking pictures. I don't know who he was. Nobody else. I asked him. He didn't know who he was. He'd taken pictures. And I heard this guy say behind me, he said, that's that boy that's, you know, one of the crime figures in Las Vegas. And I got to thinking about that as I went home, and I, I really did. I kind of got under conviction that here all of us were over there stumbling over one another trying to take pictures of these hoodlums. See. And we were over there trying to 
you know, we were welcoming. It's just, just this madhouse of people over there just ooing and aahing over these absolute thugs. Because what, where we have placed the emphasis and the value is on the clothes and the cars and the money and how a person looks in his face. What kind of body they have. What kind of clothes they wear. How many rings they've got. And if they can ride in a stretch limousine that has dual tires on the back. And if you think you're not as guilty uh, as the people in James, I'm not as guilty as the people in James' day, you're just fooling yourself. And you say, the reason why it's so bad, and it is bad, it's bad with young people, it's bad with adults, that, that, that the folks, that, I mean the real people are the, are the slim rich. And I'm neither. That's why I'm upset. <laughs> he said, and the motive, he said, is that, that there is an evil motive. Now why do they bring him down and put him on the front seat? Perhaps for what they can get out of him. One of the greatest books, one of the most influential books of this century is a book by Martin Buber. If you went to the seminary and took religious philosophy, you had to read his book. It's a long religious, he's a Jewish mystic, it's a long religious poem called I Thou. If, you've, if you read it, you know what it's about. He says that people operate in this life on the basis of I Thou and I It relationships. The I-thou relationship is that I see you as a human being of worth and value. If I operate on an I-it relationship, I see you as a thing to manipulate. I see you as a thing to disregard or discard. I see you as a thing that's just about as important to me as this wood and this pulpit. You see what I'm saying? And he said this whole world operates on the basis of I see you as a human being created in the image of God with worth and value no matter how you look and no matter how you dress or I see you as a thing that I can use and manipulate and you're with me and so I'm important when you're with me. So what if an old boy came into this church in overalls and what if he came in here barefooted and what if he were dirty? Or what if he's black? Or what if she's divorced? True story, I was out visiting in this town, a lady, a divorced lady, and she's telling me, she said, uh, now if we came to your church, do we have to sit at a certain place? I said, what? She said, well, do we have to sit in a certain place? I said, of course not. Sit in where you want to if you can wrestle the old folks out of their common pews. She said, she said well, I, I, uh, she said, I went to a church in this town. Thank God it didn't a Baptist church. She said, I went to a church in this town and they knew I was divorced and they said I had to sit over here. You remember hearing Rebecca Pippert tell about that large evangelical church in, in, in Portland, Oregon? And it was packed out wall-to-wall -wall people one Sunday morning. And in walked a street person. Didn't have any shoes on, had cut-offs, long stringy hair, and he stunk. And somehow he got past the ushers and came on down to the front. Just before the preacher started to preach, he came right down the aisle and sat, sat down, not on the front pew, sat out on the floor, right in front of the preacher. Now that upset most preachers. 
And he said every time the preacher said something, you know, it was really meant something, it was, amen, he'd say. You know, I mean, he's getting with it. Now here's this long-haired street person, smell, no shoes, cutoffs, tank top, sitting right there. Well, it's time for the usher to move into action. So way back at the back, the head usher, kind of an elderly gentleman, stood up, had on a beautiful suit, $100 shoes. Here he sits, shouting amen, right in front of the preacher, right where he's getting spit on, right, right there. And, and, and this big church, carpet aisles, cushion pew, packed out, uh, the church of Portland, with all the right people. So here comes this usher. I mean, he's going to come down. Here's this guy sitting down here. So the usher, you know, not wanting, you know, to make a big scene, he comes down around and, and he walks over to where the guy is sitting on the floor right down in front of the preacher and sits down beside him on the floor and starts chiming in, amen, with a street person. You wonder why that church was packed out wall to wall every Sunday? You don't have to guess why. He belonged there. And the rich head usher in his fine suit and black and, and, and $100 shoes belonged with him sitting down on the front seat right in front of the preacher. They belonged together. Where would you sit him? If he came in your church, you see. That's the principle illustrated. What is the prince? How is the principle explained? Now, he says there are three reasons why prejudice is wrong. If you're still in the notes, if you haven't passed it all the way down to the end of your pew with a little letter about what you're going to do tonight. You still got, you still got one. We're at theologically. Why it's wrong? For, the, for theological reasons. Because of a theological reason. Look at verse 5. Let me read again. He says, look at this. He said, listen, my beloved, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who loved Him? Theological reason. Prejudice is inconsistent with God's method of doing things. Are you listening? Are you hearing that? Prejudice is inconsistent with God's method of doing things. He didn't choose the rich of the world. He, cho he chose the rich and the poor. Now, you got, your book, you got your Bible handy? I want you to turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians. Theologically, I'm going to show you how God did it. Romans, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to start reading at verse 25. 1 Corinthians, listen to this. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God has chosen, no, verse 26, for, God, for consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. That is, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Over in the and I won't have time to read it, we're running a little late. 
chapter 6, verse 9, he talks about all the liars and the homosexuals and the perverts and the infidels that are, uh, you know, in, in the church. And he said, and such were some of you. The way God has chosen to do his work is, is through, the, through the base and the small and the insignificant. Second reason, it's just logical. Look at verse 6. He said, you don't find poor people dragging you into court, do you? You find these rich folks doing it. A poor man doesn't do that. He said, you're exalting nobility, and it's nobility that's your chief enemy. And he said, you're taking these hoodlums, and you're making heroes out of them, and worshiping these guys. Is that logical? Is it logical? To, to, to worship and almost idolize the people who are destroying the very fiber and heart of the country? Does that make sense? That's what we do. And he said, then there's a biblical reason. Verse 8 is the biblical reason. He says, because of the royal law of love. Look at that with me, verse 8 again. It says, if, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, how can you say that you love your neighbor as yourself if you're, if you're discriminating against him? You ever read the book Black Like Me? It's a book written by a man named Griffin. He had, he had every characteristic of a black person. He had dark skin and, and he had curly hair. He, he looked just like a black person, but he wasn't. But during the height of the, of the, of the segregation movement and the, and the integration movement down in, in, in Alabama and Mississippi, he went down there and posed as a black person, wrote this book, Black Like Me. And he said, everybody says they love the black people. I can tell you, they love the black people, but it's not like they say they do. We put reservations and restrictions on our love, don't we? I love you if you do something for me. I love you if, you if you're pretty and you're rich and you're attractive and you're famous. Like the old boy said, Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. My girl looks like a bale of hay. <laughs> Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. But would I trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. <laughs> I mean, love, <laughs> you got to draw a line somewhere, right? I mean, there, we, we put these reservations and these restrictions on love. I'm going to love you as long as, it's, as long as you're lovable. Now look at the principle applied and then we're through. How am I going to apply this? Verses 12 and 13. Three things, would you get these? Let the Scripture be your standard and not your heritage. Let, your, let the Scripture be your standard and not your heritage. Now some of us grew up in times where, there, where discrimination was um, practiced, was rampant. You know, I'm not that old. I would tell you a funny story about something that happened today at noon. Mark's kid saw this old white-haired gentleman and said, hey, there's Brother Gerald. You know, 
Mark, you're going to have to teach your boy to act better than that. Some of us, I'm not that old. Some of us grew up in a time where, where discrimination was rampant. I lived in a town where there was a white school and a black school. And some of us grew up in a time where it was easy for us to, to put people in little categories and, and we, we stereotyped them and compartmentalized them on the basis of their, where they went to church or the color of their skin or the language they spoke. And that's the heritage of some of us. Let me tell you, put that aside and let the standard be the law of God the Word of God. In fact, if you want to hold literally to the text, he's saying, let Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord, He's the one who has the glory. Let Him be the standard. You just do like He did. He sure didn't show any discrimination. Second, let love be your law. Let love be your law. Unlike the Pharisees and other Orthodox Jews, a Christian was a man who, whose life is not governed by the external pressures of a whole series of rules and regulations. His life is ruled by love. Third, let mercy be your message. That's what he says in verse 13. Let mercy be your message. And I remind you of the story of the woman taken in the act of adultery. And, and after, the, after the dust had cleared, or Jesus wrote on the ground, after the dust had cleared, Jesus said, Who condemns you? And, and she said, No man. And he said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let mercy be applied. Now here's a heavy question. Um... Are we as concerned about reaching those folks that come down here and line up on Friday morning? Some of them are down here. I get here at 7. I want you to know I get here early. I get here at 7. And they're already out there lined up. In the dead cold winter time. I've come down here at 7 o'clock and they're standing there in the doorway to get in, see a doctor. All of it's free. And they're lined up down there in the hall. Are we as concerned about reaching those folks that come here on Friday, lined up down there on the hall, and got a dime to their name as we are about reaching the new president of the bank moved in town? Are we as concerned about reaching them as him? Heavy question, isn't it? And that big old obese, grossly obese girl that broke my heart I shared with you several months ago in a, in a series of sermons that I see walking away from the campus of Durant High School alone, so obese. Are we as concerned about getting her in the youth choir as we are the cheerleader? Just moved into town. Heavy question. And when it comes right down to it, when they come in, standing at the back, needing a seat, where do we put them? And where we put them 
is on the basis of where they are right here. It's true. I'm as guilty and more so than everybody else here. Brethren, stop showing favoritism. Let's pray. Lord, we can, we can laugh, we can cry, we can get angry. We face your word. But the truth is, it's your word. And I pray that we'll face that word in our life. Be willing to be doers, not just hearers only. For I pray in his name, who saw everybody alike, who loved the leper, reached out and touched the publican, the harlot, saw everybody the same. In his name I pray. Now in the spirit of, of prayer, look here, three invitations. An invitation for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Boy, it's wonderful to see Christian people who love the Lord. We're not perfect, no, by no means. We used to, I'm not trying to get anybody off on a guilt trip. We're, we, we, we all know we're not perfect. Boy, it's good to see Christian people, though, like these college students that I know and these young people and you. I recommend it you're here tonight and you're not a Christian I recommend it it's a great life you can have your sin forgiven you can go to heaven you can be born again you can you can be saved if you give your heart and life to Jesus transfer your confidence struggles that you have over to him come on and do that tonight it might be that some of you want to come and place your life in the church there might be some of God's people that need to be more godly. You feel like coming forward will help you in that pilgrimage because you want the prayers of the people and you want to confess publicly. We'll, we want to give you an opportunity and we'll not sing but maybe a couple of stanzas. So if you're going to come, you'll need to do it on the first word while we stand and sing.